0: Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, buy a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Laugh and grow fat. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Brian. Hi. Today's episode is Hell Had No Vacancies. Our deep dive into the enemy force dead cell from Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Today, we're going to begin discussing the plant portion of MGS2, or the Big Shell portion, which takes place two years after the sinking of the USS Discovery, uh, as we discussed last time. As we duck and dive through the narrative, we will be introduced to the members of Dead Cell, a counterterrorism unit organized under U.S. President George Sears. Remember that name. A familiar voice sounds out from Metal Gear's past. It's the colonel! He's asking snake, quote-unquote, about the tanker sinking two years back, to which a masked foxhound operative responds, of course. But of course, that's not the voice of the solid snake we know. This unknown agent remembers the event, which he recalls was an oil spill, and that a giant decontamination facility was thrown up over it, the big shell. As he begins his infiltration into the offshore plant, the colonel gives him his mission parameters. A terrorist unit known as the Sons of Liberty have seized the Big Shell, demanding $30 billion in exchange for high-profile hostages, including James Johnson, the American president. If their demands are not met, the terrorists plan to blow up the Big Shell, dumping crude oil and toxins into New York Bay and utterly decimating the entire ecosystem. Earlier, the colonel changed our agent's codename from the aforementioned Snake to Raiden, and now he tells us why. The Sons of Liberty leader is is claiming to be Solid Snake, the hero of Shadow Moses, but also supposedly the dead traitor who sank the oil tanker that led to the Big Shell's construction in the first place. The remainder of the unit is Russian private military, led by Olga Gerlukovich, who appears to have survived the tanker incident. And of course, the Special Forces unit, Dead Cell. Uh, We'll take a second here to catch you up on Dead Cell. This unit was established by U.S. President George Sears in the early aughts and were designed to carry out assaults on allied bases to provide training for Navy SEALs and the U.S. Marine Corps. Their original leader, Colonel Jackson, would be incarcerated and later die in prison under false charges of corruption. Leadership fell to his wife, Fortune, a.k.a. Helena Dolph Jackson— who is also the daughter of U.S. Marine Commander Scott Dolph, who we know from the tanker incident, killed by Ocelot. Several betrayals, including the elimination of some of its members, would radicalize Dead Cell, eventually causing them to go rogue. The remaining members are Fortune along with Vamp and Fat Man, and they would reorganize with George Sears, who is ex-president at this point, prior to taking the Big Shell under siege. Now, this Dead Cell is modeled after the real-life unit known as Red Cell, uh, which also had a very similar story in our real-world history. Uh, Just like Dead Cell, they were tasked with infiltrating Allied bases, uh, planting bombs, including those near Air Force One in one of their more uh, famous missions, and taking over submarine bases to test uh, emergency and response preparedness of uh, U.S. and other Allied forces. Uh, but they, uh, Red Cell would eventually be disbanded because they were charged with misappropriating funds. Uh, but some people believe that's just kind of a cover story for the fact that Red Cell had actually uncovered legitimately either national security threatening or national security damning, most like, uh, Intel um, in the process of their, uh, their clandestine, clandestine, God, I can't say that word. So I'm just going to say stealth operations. Clandestine. And that, there we go, clandestine uh so uh they basically have the same kind of history uh as the dead cell that we're going to go over here um and they're this a uh, game's version of foxhound uh from metal gear solid which is well, i'm gonna say
1: that's something that every game maybe to its detriment tries to do is recreate foxhound in in mgs 4s case like literally almost
0: Uh, this one, uh, there seems to be at least a more thematic uh, reason to do it, which will help in the long run. Yeah. And I think... When we talk about Kojima making like the Hollywood game, I think he, that's equal parts Hollywood and game. And like sequels have been a thing that have kind of always been a part of video yeah. games, more in the fact that you have a Zelda, then you're going to get a bunch more Zelda after it. But really telling a continuous story, I think we talked about the Zelda canon a little bit. Like they really don't need to be a continuing canon. All of the games can exist as their own take on um, the same concepts, so more or less.
1: Yeah, it, it works best as like. Uh, reference an easter egg to me it's not really it's not necessary to be like a the timeline has always been dumb to me i never cared for it personally as a zelda guy
0: yeah i think the only games that i wouldn't say really had a timeline to me was maybe like Mega Man early in the or mid 90s yeah and even then it would they they all stood alone but it like the x series definitely felt like it preceded the nes (laughs) stuff and then all that stuff and that's kind of where the you know, franchise started falling apart after like X two, X three. I mean, it survived a while, but it just lost my interest at that.
1: Yeah, point. Yeah, i but. sorry. I just had I just had an image of, let's say, Metal Gear Solid one comes out in like 2016. So it said it's the Metal Gear universe.
0: Oh God, yeah. The cin- Oh, the ugh.
1: Metal the, the connected Metal Gear universe. Let's get a, a prequel about Sniper Wolf.
0: Yeah, you're gonna get that Cobra Unit uh, show. Uh, Great. Yeah that reminds me
1: that i saw a th- i saw a tweet about this about how uh it's presumptive to think like one of the best things about the original star wars trilogy is that it's you you get to hear the clone wars reference and you can just kind of fill that in for yourself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be done for you. And one of the best examples of, of, of like if that was if 60s and 70s and 80s sci-fi had the meant to have the corporate mentality of now, you get something like uh um the, the the analogy somebody used would be like Romulan Ale was something referred to a lot during I think the original series and TNG and if it happened now someone would be like we're making a prequel set on a Romulan brewery and right. so we can see about this Romulan Ale it's just like the old Patton Oswalt bit like I don't care about where these things come from that's that's what it is now and that's the prequels are partly responsible for this but that's one of the things I like about Metal Gear is that it's and that, that I think is something that's directly
0: from Kojima right? like he doesn't give a shit about that he does not care yeah I think the original example, you were talking about the Clone Wars, the best example for me is Jabba the Hutt, yes. who did not appear in that original 1997 film, but you just knew that Han owed him money, you had that Greedo scene, so it created the illusion of this larger world with this underground mob uh, culture, and you know, then when we got the special edition in, I think it was 97, I believe. Yeah, and yes it was. Then they actually made that Jabba scene explicit. So even though it realized something from the world building, it also almost seemed to like shrink the world.
1: To be fair, the Jabba scene was filmed. It was just a guy in a big trench coat, and it just looked stupid, right? Like it was one of the few things. It's one of the few things Lucas decided looked stupid, which is that's I guess that's character growth for him. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess that'd be character regression because he, <laughs> twenty years later, decided that nothing looked stupid and that everything was good, like Dexter Jetster.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where it's not one of the worst sins in terms of all the things that have happened to the Star Wars universe, but that's kind of an example where sometimes an idea can just float out there, and it makes sense to maybe leave some gaps in storytelling so down the road they can be filled in. We've talked about uh, Miyazaki a lot on this podcast already, Uh and he's someone who's just so gentle and subtle with his world building where why things are happening or what the story behind them Unless they're like very critical to the resolution of the story he's telling, he just bypasses it entirely and leaves things completely, not even unanswered, but uninterrogated. It just, you know, it happens. Uh, and I, I like that a lot. It Not everything needs to have... I call it like the wickification of culture a little bit. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of things that go into it. I also... I'm not huge on like getting spoilers ahead of time. And I know people vary on that. But a lot of times you'll see people react to like bullet point spoilers of what the latest movie coming yeah. out. And I'm like, yeah. I, I understand cinema enough to know that I need to see it presented, performed with score and sound. Like just... If you reduce a lot of mo- movies to their bullet points, if you reduce metal gear to its bullet points, it's just nonsense. It's gobbledygook to a certain degree. Yeah, it's complete it's complete absolute hor- it, it makes no
1: sense whatsoever, especially this game.
0: Yeah, and this game actually, you know, somewhat engages with that cuz uh one thing I wanted to talk about next was so we talked about Fortune Vamp and Fat Man and we'll get into all three of them individually throughout this episode. But there were some members of the that were originally going to be part of the game, and they were cut from the game for various reasons. I'm going to go over them in a second. But then I mentioned in the actual narrative synopsis of Dead Cell that um, there was an incident a little bit before the Big Shell incident that called the team to fall into disarray and several members were killed. Basically, the members of Dead Cell that were left on the cutting room floor of the story, were then turned to be members to have been killed off screen in the actual narrative itself, which is, again, I don't want to just use the word meta for the sake of saying a word that, you know, implies layers or kind of a recursive level of logic to it. But you see kind of the narrative storytelling aspect reflected in the actual narrative itself is kind of what I'm getting at. And getting to some of those uh, cut members, so to speak, um, the first one I'm not going to say is name in full, because um, it's technically a slur. I will say c Man, where C stands for China. And it was supposed to be a character that was modeled after Jet Li, who was really starting to gain prominence in the West at this point. Uh, Lethal Weapon 4, uh, Romeo Must Die were just a couple of the titles oh, that pop yeah. to mind.
1: <laughs> Romeo Must Die, one of my favorite bad films. It's... it's- yeah. ridiculous movie.
0: Yeah. And I love it. And uh, Rip Aaliyah, she was great, you know, in the short time that we had her. Yeah.
1: She was like legitimately a good actress in that film.
0: Yeah. And a hell of an artist.
1: Delroy Lindo is in it.
0: Oh God. And Delroy, hopefully he, um, you know, I like the five bloods a lot, but uh, he was immaculate in that. And he'd be a great person to see win hardware for that. He should, he should. But anyways, those are, those are some great things. I actually like lethal weapon for a lot too. not having revisited it a lot. Uh, In the last 20 years But I remember enjoying that And I remember Jet Li Was the first place I saw someone Disassemble Someone else's gun That was pointing at them Uh, You know Where you take off The top of the gun I don't know guns So I can't But he basically Mel Gibson or Danny Glover pointing a gun at him yeah, he he disengages the slide and pulls everything apart, something we'll see the boss do a whole oh, heck yeah. of a lot in MGS3. And I really wonder if that's where Kojima got it from, especially after learning that uh, he was supposed to have a Jet st- uh style character in this game. Uh, But this character would be, a lot of his character design and his envisioned role in the game would be merged into Vamp. Uh, Vamp would kind of end up being uh, an amalgamation of a couple characters uh, as they were kind of cutting and refining the story. And we'll get to him shortly. And the other character that was cut from Dead Cell was old boy who was supposed to be a german centenarian uh, over 100 years old who fought during world war ii and he was supposed to have an unnatural long life due to mutant enzymes and he was supposed to also probably be the sniper battle for this game and you and you fought him in a hallway that's right i'm kidding yeah (laughs) um and if this all sounds vaguely like something you might have heard of from other metal gears you're right this is basically the end who would be turned uh you know, into a boss for Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, and the whole concept of the mutant enzymes and long life would be part of the Metal Gear Solid 5 parasite technology that they get into, which we'll save that for another day. But um, as you see, concepts that they develop early in the Metal Gear franchise, they'll hold on to some of these and, you know, carry them forward into either other characters within the game or other uh, games down the road. And... At this point, uh, we'll cut dead cell for now. We'll come back to the individual members a little later. But uh, picking back up with the narrative, um, our agent Raiden works his way into the big shell, and a familiar man in a blue sneaking suit seems to be just a few steps ahead of him. Another intruder besides himself. Raiden knew Navy SEALs were also being inserted into more were, were being also inserted into the big shell more overtly via chopper, uh, but his mission was meant to be a solo sneaking mission. Um, and here in the service elevator up to the top of the big shell, uh, we meet our playable character, the blonde haired, pale skinned, lanky Jack, who has none of the gruff or heteronormative manliness of Solid Snake. And we should probably take a moment here to pause and reflect that this was for a long time Metal Gear Solid 2's legacy, especially before it was reappraised for its postmodern. Um, you know, thought and it's uh, weighing in on the information age and the internet, like well ahead of its time. What Metal Gear Solid 2 was really known for, especially in the, um, what's it called, fallout of its release was the fact that they took Solid Snake away from me, who deserved <laughs> to play as Solid Snake. Uh, but no, it was, it was a huge twist. And uh, I want to kind of hear where you're at with it, because you kind of came to this game not necessarily at launch or more oh, yeah. in, the, in the zeitgeist before actually playing it itself.
1: Yeah, so I, that wasn't something that surprised me in the slightest. I'd already heard about it. I played it again, like bef- right before I think the critical reinterpretation stuff started happening. So I knew about Raiden, and all I really knew is that nobody liked him. That was like the the thing. But looking back, it's I, I do remember some of the, the marketing for the game, and so like I remember that being confusing when I first really kind of reckoned with it. of being Like, why is this guy in the game? It's really remarkable looking back that Kojima marketed a game like this, like. Ryden is not on the packaging, and he, you plays him for ninety percent of the game. It's kind of amazing to do that. Uh, the only other time I can think anything like that happened is with MGSV, where they explicitly call you big boss in the marketing and on all the trailers. Like, you know, every thirty seconds. I can't think of anything else that, that like openly deceived its players like that, like on something important. Like, just plenty of games like that, or. Or something deliberate, I guess is what I meant to say. Because Cyberpunk deceived its players by telling them that, that the game worked properly on Xbox One and PlayStation 4 when it obviously <laughs> did not. But um but yeah, I think it's it's pretty incredible. It's an incredible gambit that a game this big, because it was the biggest game of that it was like coming into the year. If if they if the 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 games the games ranking industrial complex that it had existed then like it does now like if the YouTube algorithm stuff had existed then or the or the SEO that's that's what i was looking for MGS two would have been like the the most anticipated game of 20, or 2001, I think because yeah Halo was, was kind of an unknown yeah the
0: only games that we would say bigger than Metal Gear Solid two from two thousand one are games that kind of came out of nowhere or did not have an established brand but looking forward to it or like FF ten maybe. Yeah, sure.
1: But yeah, that's still, that's like the, because that was the big debut of the Final Fantasy series. But that had come out, that, did that release? I'm going to check that. I think it came out after.
0: Uh, But also like Grand Theft Auto would be the only other game besides Halo that I would say. Yeah, that
1: wasn't as big of a... And that was... That kind of came out of nowhere, yeah. Exactly.
0: Um, Because the previous games were these top-down.
1: They were so popular, uh, but yeah, they weren't. Okay, yeah, FF10 did release in July in Japan. I I was thinking it released in 2000 in Japan for some reason, because that happens, but... But yeah, that's it. That's the only other game no. I think that was would have been as marketed as heavily, at, at least in Japan. Although Final Fantasy was growing pretty big here by that point.
0: And I've been thinking about trying to come up with games that have such big changes, especially in say the playable character or like in a way that's not just narrative. Like I know that uh death death of Aerith in FF7 is one that sticks with a lot of people, but it's. I don't want to minimize that event because that, like you know, shook me too when it happened, and I was, you know, obviously a m- lot younger. But it didn't fundamentally change the game or my perception of the game in a way that, uh, you know, something like the ride and twist did. Uh, as some people have mentioned like near uh, near Automata has some big, you know, kind of changes. Uh, the thing with near though is
1: the near. I was going to mention it because. Yokotaro is a niche game developer like he he has his niche and nier was like his big breakout game so by the time that that game like really burst into the mainstream the the whole you had to play it three times thing had already kind of been spoiled mm-hmm. so i don't know if that really counts i would say ff6 is actually one even though it's um a different like you don't think Cap. Ka- like you think the whole game that Ka- you're going to defeat kefka and then you don't <laughs> yeah he wins and he destroys the earth basically so that, that's, like, the only thing I could think of.
0: Yeah, destroying the world map, you know, it functionally, functionally works just like a light world, dark world, or, you know, it works like any other game mechanic. But it actually felt like something narrative that you hadn't really seen before, Um, just kind of restructuring the entire narrative, the entire party, Uh, you know, just kind of halfway through the game. Even then, it's
1: not like the marketing for that game was, you will defeat Kefka. Like, that's what it'd be like. Right or it be like if if they marketed Kafka on all the covering and then he dies 10 minutes into the game and there's some and somebody else is the villain. Yes. That's that's what that's like. Yeah. It's really remarkable. It's amazing it didn't it's amazing that like Konami's marketing went with it. Mm-hmm. Like you, you would really assume that they wouldn't for a game that big.
0: Yeah. And uh, just to remind folks, it's not just that oh Solid Snake was front and center. There was a demo disc that went out uh with Zone of Enders and I mentioned last time that you could actually rent it because there was so much hype for MGS2. It's just like, sure, go rent the demo disc. It's like an hour of gameplay and we get the same money off of it. Uh so, like he was front and center in all the advertising and we talked about that sizzle reel or cinematic trailer ahead of the start menu in the game. Raiden is in that for all of like Two seconds at the end, you see his face only clearly once in that entire thing. They flash uh, the voice actor's name, Quentin Flint, second after David Hayter. Uh, but other than that, there is no indication that this is anything other than a solid snake game. Um, and the other thing with that is, if you think about sequels now, especially how we think about it with movies and games, is we think of it as something that's supposed to be safe. Like this is a bankable product. And, you know, if we just give them essentially more of the same, and what's funny is this give, game gives you a lot more of the same, but in a really different way, or it's about why giving you more of the same is, why do you want it? It confronts you with the idea, like, why is this what you want? Do you
1: want the same? Yes. Why, like, why do you want that? And it's, it's really important to, like, yeah. I really think, even counting four, I think it's important that, like, no Metal Gear game ever really goes for the same tone as MGS1, and they're all... Like, it's one of the hallmarks of the series. Is like it's you don't you were never settled into like a comfortable routine of like as much as I love Halo, but, like the Halo formula, which works great. It's perfect for those games, you know the, the the gameplay formula and like the way that those games work. But like that's the kind of thing that this is implicitly criticizing, right? Not that like, he was criticizing Halo, obviously that hadn't come out when this game came out, but like that that concept of sort of the I guess. I don't want to compare it to shooters, but I guess like the, I mean, it's even even at that point in gaming, it's that's the form you know sequelitis. It's a thing that existed, right? It's it's incredible. It's an incredible feat that, and this is one of the things I feel pretty comfortable giving Kojima the credit for because it had to have been his idea. Like, there's no way it would have happened if it wasn't his idea, Mm -hmm. or if it wasn't an idea that he ran with that someone else, and if someone else made it up, we're not going to know. But I'd be willing to bet that this is his, yeah, because he's talked before about how much he likes. You said you mentioned last time the terminator 2 twist like just something that recontextualizes the the entire premise of the series that's what he wants to do and that's what he did
0: yeah and uh there's a lot that i feel um i feel i realize now that a lot of what i kind of felt about raiden in 2001 like oh he's not manly oh he has no personality oh his voice acting doesn't sound you know sure of himself and all that stuff that solid snake kind of got me through um those are all reactions I now realize were the intended reaction. Um, I was supposed to feel all those things. And, you know, I don't want to say I enjoy being manipulated like that, but I can appreciate actually taking the risk and trying to do that because it's very easy just to deliver, like every other or most other game franchises, uh, just the same thing over and over. And on a smaller scale, that's why I still love Mario and Zelda is because they so ver- so rarely just, you know, keep using the same, like, systems and gameplay, you know, generally the next big Zelda game is different than the previous ones. Obviously there's some spin-off titles for most of the titles at this point. Um but it's never just like using the same engine and the same mechanics over and over. Uh, Mario does it the same way. Uh hell Super Mario World 2 is a big change up uh, for that genre because that's Yoshi's Island and uh Mario's just the little baby that rides on your back. So
1: I wanna I wanna have two things. We can we can move on here uh to actually back on topic but i want to say that (laughs) two things that that reminds me of is a uh nintendo is famous for uh form following function that's how they make games like the reason the music sounds the way it does in splatoon is because they realize that if you're shooting ink everywhere you're basically graffitiing so they're getting like punk music well like pop punk music but still for nintendo i'd consider that punk punk music um but yeah like every mario game what work why they work is because they, they don't make them until they have a new idea, some sort of new movement ability, some sort of new way to play the game. And then that, like in Mario Odyssey, the hat the the, cap, the capture using your hat to capture things from that sprung all basically the entirety of the art design and the and the level design of the game. And that's form following function. Like the function is important, what it looks like and what it sounds like. Should come from that. And they do that in a way that no other game developer does, and I think that's why they still are so successful. But I also wanted to say real quick because uh, I'm I'm going to keep bringing it up. We we were talking earlier about show basically show don't tell does that kind of storytelling. Um, it's a very different style, but uh, all all the Fumido Ueda games do that. Shadow of the Classes, Eco, Last Guardian, mm-hmm. they all do that extraordinarily well to where like you never have a full idea of what's going on in any of those games and it, they're they're significantly better and stronger because of it i, I really i'm going to keep mentioning that shadow of the colossus is up there with metal gear solid 3 is one of my favorite games that's ever existed so i'm going to bring it up as often as i can
0: <laughs> yeah i played it for the first time with the playstation 4 re-release a couple years ago and it, it was just a beautiful game uh you know just kind of losing myself in it there isn't you know I don't know. It's a very kind of personal experience. I don't know how quite to frame it, but we can we can talk about you have the Colossus whenever you want because I loved it too.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. There's there's more. There's still people to this day who are f- sifting through the files and like finding places to explore and get out of the get out of that game. Mm-hmm. And like, there's something I think that's because the game does not tell you. I mean, it tells you what it's about in the sense that you can interpret it, and I think there's there's some interpretations that are more valid, but. It, yeah, that's um, it's a game that that does not show you. It just never like sits you down and tells you what's happening, and it's it's so evocative and so there's so much space to work in that game. It's very very different from Metal Gear, like formerly. But I, I think that's sort of the ideal that I, I think Kojima would like to get to. I don't know if he can because he loves dialogue.
0: <laughs> uh, he loves explaining his hand, but.
1: But MGS2, MGS2 is sort of that kind of game because you still, I think, to this day, it's hard to really sit down and and like just write out what exactly, like what the exact sequence of events are and like what exactly happens in the game and what exactly character motivations are. The the important thing as someone who I mean I have an English degree as someone, you need to know that the author or the artist behind the work knows what the motivations are. You don't need to know them. As long as you can tell that there's some sort of internal consistency behind everything. A great example is uh, Deus Ex Human Revolution. Although that game isn't like super mysterious, the art team, the, the, the director of the game made the art team and the writers all watch the same like 10 movies, it was like Blade Runner and you know, a bunch of cyberpunk movies, and then read all the same books and then like all this and listen to the same music for like three months. So they all got on the exact same wavelength. And that's a game that really has like. It just feels like one guy made it, even though it was made by a big studio. And that's that's the sort of the thing I think that's what you want as an artist. But uh and that's I think why we sort of attribute everything to Kojima, even though like he didn't program the he didn't, you know, write all the code of the game. He didn't he's not the art designer. He's not but it it's still Metal Gear has that that very rare feeling that like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure maybe kind of has where it's it's a huge you know, billion-dollar property that still feels like it's some guy's weird art project. And I think that if you can capture that feeling,
0: you will have fans forever. And and Metal Gear still does, as, you know, evidence 20 years later. (laughs) That's why we're here. And, no, I think that's all uh, really well said. And I think there is a consistency across the Metal Gear Solid and, you know, series specifically that feels like... And, you know, we've talked about Yoji Shinkawa, uh, Fukushima, I think, on the writing team, uh, there's a lot of uh, regulars that would be part of. Right now, it's KCE Japan with the first two Metal Gear Solids, and then we'll go on to be Kojima Production starting with MGS3. So, uh, like we said in our very first episode, there's a. There's a strong team behind Kojima at every step of the way, but, uh, oh yeah, this is a Metal Gear podcast. So right around the time that we're meeting our protagonist Raiden, aka Jack, uh, we also meet the mission's data analyst, who is also the game's save mechanic, and that's Rosemary, Jack's real life partner. Jack and Rose, get it, you know, from that Titanic film from 1998, uh, this game did open with a giant sinking of a ship, so uh, the, the, again, all the films that Kojima watches are on his mind constantly. Uh, the original analyst assigned to the mission disappeared shortly beforehand, so Rose was brought in at the last minute. Jack and Rose will interrogate their own relationship over the course of this mission, especially centered on the significance of tomorrow, April 30th. Uh, Anyways, Raiden's first objective is to secure the president. Uh, He comes in unarmed because weapons and equipment are OSP, naturally. Uh, Raiden stumbles upon an old M9 tranquilizer gun left unattended in the warehouse, which, through codec calls, it's heavily implied this is snake's gun from the tanker incident, and it just kind of washed up, you know, sometime in the last two years. Uh, Raiden then makes his way to the transformer room only to discover a bloody hallway similar to the Gray Fox scenario in Shadow Moses. Raiden discovers the Navy SEAL's alpha team all slaughtered, with a vampiric foe sucking blood from one of the bodies. This is Vamp, one of the members of Dead Cell. Vamp almost gets the drop on Raiden as well, but an unseen Navy SEAL emerges to shoo him off, but not before the SEAL raises Vamp's suspicions. We'll get to that Navy SEAL in a second, but let's talk about vampire who is voiced by Phil Lamar. The great Phil Lamar. The legendary Phil Lamar. Did he do a voice? Did Was he Gray, uh, gray Fox in the first game? Uh, maybe not. No, it's Rob else. Paulson,
1: I think. Or unless that was Rob Paulson oh, in, right. Twins, in Twin Snakes. I know it's Rob Paulson in Twin
0: Snakes. I can't remember if it is in the okay. first one. I should. He's my favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> um, he might be a holdover from the first game's cast. I'll try to clarify that at some point in the future. Uh, Vamp was born Romanian in historically what is known as Transylvania. Vampire, get it. And he suffered a hero- horrific trauma during a church bombing in his youth. A crucifix pierced him. Uh, very subtle Kojima. And he was buried underneath the rubble for two days. He had to sustain himself on the blood and flesh of his dead family to survive, and uh, he would end up... Up being one of the first dead cell recruits, uh, Vamp's character design shows a trench and uh, trench coat and bare chest with self-inflicted scratches to mark the day's prey count. The long flowing coat would mimic bat wings or a vampire cape when he leapt into the air, um, and his movements were influenced by flamenco dancer Joaquin Cortez. And if you actually Google Joaquin Cortez and look at some of his videos on YouTube, uh, you'll see a lot of similar uh, flourishes and flares that. Uh, you'll see in Vamp's uh, animations in this game. Uh, getting into some of the themes and ideas behind Vamp, uh, he was injected with nanomachines uh, that we'll find out in later in the series that gives him his healing factor that renders him basically near immortal.
1: Midichlorians, you mean.
0: Yes. <laughs> that's I, that's how I feel about that. I don't like it. I would prefer to ignore it. I, I don't love it either, uh, but I think this is... Uh, Kojima once again going to the whole human genome well, yeah. and basically genetics as a way to cheat death or to cheat God, um, and then uh, you know making him being able to cheat the one th- you know we're all born with an expiration date as you like to remind us, uh, and then using genetics as possibly a way to prolong or you know get rid of that expiration date. Uh, These nanomachines also supposedly make him unnaturally agile, strong, quick. He can walk and run on water, uh, which, you know, we mentioned that he was, you know, his trauma comes in a church bombing. Uh, He was, you know, hit by a crucifix. So there's all sort of uh, Christian imagery kind of wrapped up in him, or at least church imagery wrapped up in him. And the whole running and walking on water might remind you of someone else from the Bible. I don't know. I've never read the thing, so... Um, and then he also has an enhanced sense of smell. Um, we mentioned he kind of smelled something suspicious about the Navy seal who saved Raiden just a few minutes ago.
1: Which Jesus can also do, as we all remember from the Bible.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Jesus has a great sense of smell. But he smells
1: sin. He smells crime.
0: Um, <laughs> a lot of these similarities do remind me of Wolverine for no other reason than I've analogized Metal Gear to a lot of the Marvel Comics universe in previous episodes, so I wanted to throw that out there. It's funny because I was going to
1: compare him to Victor
0: Zazz, but yeah, famous Batman villain. Oh,
1: another guy who loves blades. And loves carving uh, his victims on himself.
0: Right. And tally marks. And uh, one thing we'll talk about with all the Dead Cell members, because America is very front and center in this game. It's very thematically important to Metal Gear Solid 2. Sons of Liberty, obviously, is a meme from the American Revolution carried forward. Um, and all the Dead Cell members kind of invoke something of that. Uh, Vamp is the only one who's not actually born American of the unit, but he is a famous Hollywood movie monster. And with his presence here, and in this game especially, he just seems like a vampire. All the scientific nanomachine mumbo-jumbo is not in this game. Uh, so it is very surrealist or hyper-realistic. And um, invoking horror tones that makes the whole uh, big shell incident feel like a dream or maybe more accurately a nightmare. And he is this game's kind of sub in for Gray Fox, uh, you know, who famously was kind of the most, you know, out there or hyper realistic moments of the first game. And uh, we can't really talk about Vamp without mentioning like the very iconic line about his sexuality. Um, so basically, Riding gets an info dump from the Navy Seal, um, you know, about Vamp's history, and Riding comes to the regional uh, reasonable conclusion: Oh, that's why he's called Vamp. Um, and then uh, the Seal will go, "No, he's not called Vamp because he's a vampire. It's because he's a bisexual," which kind of comes out of nowhere in the game, and honestly, is the, one of the first times I can really remember hearing bisexual in, you know, a piece of art that I really liked or enjoyed, and kind of the. Um, origin of this phrasing or terminology is from Rudyard Kipling's poem The Vampire um where um kind of gave or Origin to the word "vamp" being American slang for a femme fatale kind of character, and uh, this might be a result of either a mistranslation or localization or word choice in the script, uh, because we mentioned that "vamp" was the combination of two characters in the original design. One of them was that original seaman concept, and then there was anu- and then the original "vamp" concept was supposed to be female uh but when they you know kind of came together into the one character that we see in the game uh vamp became a male character but that two combined genders might be what um kind of gave rise to that phrasing as well
1: and vampires are historically or i guess part of their legend is that they're like extremely avaricious sexually so yeah like a lot of them, like the Hollywood movie monster vampire was mostly a sexless being. But like the, um, I mean, I guess Dracula was like kind of
0: uh, interview with the vampire is pretty hot. But yeah, I mean, like I mean, I'm talking about the the classic horror, the, like the f- oh right, right, like the Nosferatu's, and- yeah, like the Universal monster shit. Um,
1: but like, like historically, vampires are like, omni- like sexual omnivores. Like that's like the, the the part of the legend is that they'll just entice anyone, basically. So I think that part of that's probably where where he's coming from, some of that from too. For sure.
0: And, uh, you know, eating human flesh, that couldn't be anything more, um, especially if you're undiscerning of the victims. Especially if you're if you're uh, Mads Mickelson playing <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. Ooh, yeah. And all that, like, talk about translation or localization, all that stuff was just some theories I have, but that is not meant to be bisexual erasure because Vamp is very indeed very bisexual in the story in the sense that he had relations with uh, Scott Dolph, the U.S. Marine commander that we met in the tanker stage who would die at Ocelot's hands. And then he would go out and have sexual relations with Fortune, the current kind of leader of Dead Cell, at least in terms of like the armed side of it or the more martial side of it. And kind of these weird, family sexual dynamics also kind of reminds me of the Emmerichs a little bit. And over the course of this game and into Metal Gear Solid 4, um, Oticon, Hale, Emmerich will have a rivalry with Vamp, not so in the sense that they fight each other, but, you know, they have caused each other pain, or specifically Vamp causes HAL uh, significant pain. And uh, speaking of rivalries and sexual rivalries, uh, Vamp and Raiden specifically, especially in Metal Gear Solid 4, is all about them just constantly penetrating each other. Um, I can't think of any other way to (laughs) phrase it.
1: I mean, I I always read that, honestly, that Vamp is sexually excited by the idea that someone could actually kill him. I think that's what that's supposed to be, right? Like... And also he probably thinks Raiden's hot, but like I, I always read that as he's he's really into the idea of someone actually being able to kill him because it's what he wants. It's what he wants and all of, that's his entire character arc and war. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he he's excited by Raiden and he just sort of I mean, he gets off that's the he gets off on it is kind of the if you could
0: describe Vamp in one one sentence, that's what it is. That's what it would be. It, it recalls that line from that Bush song: "There's no sex in your violence." Uh, Vamp would be the one who would chastise you for that. Um, he, he kind of views them as very similar, and there are there are definitely parts of throughout the Metal Gear franchise where battle and sex are you know very much juxtaposed or thought of as two sides of the same coin.
1: It's interesting because it's not like MGS One is not like again it's not like a sexless game. It's not you know like the modern Hollywood interpretation of it where everyone is hot, but they, they worry too much about their caloric intake and they have to work out. There's like, I mean, no one fucks. Yeah. No one. Yeah. But like, like that's not MGS one, but like there isn't, there still isn't like an explicitly sexual character in that game. I would say. No, there it is. There's nobody who's like snake is snake is the closest thing. snakes just like kind of harmlessly flirting during the mission. Vamp is like, he doesn't care about the mission. He just wants to fuck. Like, yeah. He's that. It's really, it's really a very different sort of characterization. And it's, it's, I think the thing, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable about, like, he makes people uncomfortable, especially in, like, the mid 2000s. Cause I remember people, cause I played, I think I played this game before four came out, but it was close enough that I remember when people, I remember seeing, like, YouTube stuff about four or the Ryan Vamp fights, and people were like, I hate Vamp. He sucks. He's a terrible character. And I'm not saying he's the best character in the series, but, like, i, I like, Vamp is interesting. Vamp has interesting. I think he's definitely the most interesting Dead Cell member. It's why we're doing him first. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, it's it's. I do wonder how much of that is like seventeen-year-old gamers don't want to be made felt uncomfortable, right?
0: By. Uh, bisexual vampire like uh, that that's it's it's probably not more complicated than that right like it's 2001 so it's still a very i mean we still technically live in very heteronormative times and definitely still favor you know straight and traditional relations relationships uh so sexuality uh can be used by can be used as a disarming facet or something to put someone
1: that didn't actually record i I joked that uh, cap and bucky are very good friends It's that's his, 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 his love. They're his, just good friends. No, he likes Peggy. Okay. He doesn't like anyone else. That's what he like. Endgame goes like beat you over the head with like, no, he likes
0: Peggy. He's normal. We we got to put all that queer baiting uh, on the side now because we have to finish this story
1: to their credit. That's one of the few. I do think that's one of the few MCU relationships that actually has any you know, like discernible sexual tension.
0: Like in cap one, yeah, I think Pe- Peggy reaching to grab Steve's chest is probably one of the most actual sexual moments in the MCU, like, by far. Uh, yeah, Cap is bi. That's, that's 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 canon, that's canon. He's, sorry, it has to be. Um, I also like the interpretation that Cap is also a trans man uh, because he needed to get his injections and his medicine, and uh, he went through his transformation and came out um, that's true. a man. So I like that interpretation as well. Uh, Before we skip off of Vamp, uh, you know, we like to talk about how the boss fights kind of play into the character design and themes. Uh, We actually fight Vamp a little later in the game. Uh, He pilots the Harrier, but that's more of a Solidus fight. So when we talk about Solidus, we'll talk about him. Uh, We fight him in a purification chamber, like at the bottom of one of the shells. I think it's shell one still. Um, no, it's actually shell too because you have to go get Emma from there. But the whole idea of a purification, yes, that's yes, true. A purification chamber is, uh, again, invoking that Christian sense of purification, whether it's baptism or water based. Again, he was, you know, hit with a crucifix in a church bombing, so he's just showered in these themes. Uh, Vamp's movements are very inhuman. Um, again, they were kind of modeled off a of flamenco dancer, but because they're going for. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Bram Stoker, Dracula. I'm talking to the reader or the listener as much as you, Brian, but they talk about uh, that Dracula like climbing up and down walls like a spider. Um, it's it's very inhuman. In the- that's that's where like almost the entirety of the
1: supernatural abilities vampires have comes from. Mm-hmm. Like in, in pop culture, yeah.
0: And, uh, he also does this shadow binding thing where, um, he'll try to like throw a knife and if it hits your shadow on the floor, it will actually pin right into the ground. Uh, which is kind of cool because again, we mentioned that shadows and lighting are a mechanic or an environmental feature that they really beefed up and actually made part of the gameplay this time around. Shadow binding is also a very common concept in, uh, the fantasy genre, uh, you know i you know i love to talk about a song of ice and fire melisandra's ho- whole shadow baby thing where she gives birth to a shadow demon that kills renly baratheon um that's considered sh- shadow binding within uh the realm of a song of ice and fire and game of thrones so i always like to throw that uh, out when i get in there and also the battle has kind of shades of gray fox and mantis a little bit uh vamp, uh, vamp is definitely the dead cell member who most pushes the supernatural aspects um as opposed to like fortune and especially not fat man, so uh, that's kind of where any recreation of those elements from MGS one are kind of coming forward in that boss fight.
1: yeah, it's also the fight where I think the first person shoot aiming becomes like most important because you have to shoot his you had to shoot his knives away. I mean you you can beat it without doing that, I think. It's just not easy.
0: It's hard to take no damage doing yeah. that. And I think it's also feels like the first boss fight, if you like not don't include like things like the Hindy or the Harrier, that has that verticality with the aiming and stuff, because Vam's walking on that walkway up top, um, and then he's diving below the water. Um, so you really have to use the whole uh, Y-axis with aiming in a way that you don't haven't had to do in boss fights previous to that when you're just your character and not fighting a vehicle, so to speak. Uh, you'll also fight Vamp as part of a bigger set piece on the oil fence where uh, Emma Emmerichel's sister is kind of walking along uh, an oil fence connecting various parts of the big shell structure. And this is your sniper battle for the game where you're taking out mines in front of her. You're taking out some guards patrolling. You're taking out some uh, ciphers, which are drones uh, with m- machine-mounted guns. And near the end of this set piece, uh, Vamp emerges. You'd think you've killed him, you know, a couple times in this game at this point, honestly. And uh, he, uh, you know, puts a knife to Emma's throat. And this is kind of like, the only I can't really think of a good way to do another sniper battle that isn't just two snipers in a field, which is usually uh, what Metal Gear Solid games do. Um, but the only other way I can think of it to do it is to do kind of a hostage situation where you have, uh, you know, someone holding a knife or a gun to a uh, hostage and you have to try and get that headshot in when the enemy's turned away and something like that. Uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to mention about uh, the sniper battle or the purification battle. Um, they're fine. The sniper battle sucks. <laughs> I don't like it. It's not even a battle. It's it's a set piece. It, it's a set piece, and um, not a, not a big fan of it. Yeah, I when I, when I do it, I switch between the trank rifle and the regular sniper just to kind of do ammo management. Uh, but you're not really being attacked yourself, and you just kind of lay there and just shoot stuff, and you just keep popping pills. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely feels like a letdown from the sniper wolf battle from the first game, where um like that was really the boss battle that stuck with me until the sniper battle of MGS three. It's I think it's the worst. I mean like
1: even the I think the one in four is even better because it, it even if it just apes sniper wolf. Right. And then obviously the one in five is great. So yeah, I, I think it's the worst one of the
0: main line games. Yeah. Um, the biggest part of that whole sniper battle is just that it would set up those bad feelings between Otacon and Vamp. And I just want to mention this now because uh, when we get to the actual ending of Metal Gear Solid 2, it's going to be like the least important thing to mention. But uh, during the ending sequence of this game when Raiden and Snake are talking in Manhattan, uh, during part of the scene, Raiden looks at his dog tags and throws them away. But you can actually see Vamp in the crowd in the background watching uh, Snake and Raiden talk, um, implying that he survived and he will indeed be back for Metal Gear Solid 4 just like everyone wanted. Now, let's get back to the plot, because we said Vamp was shoot off by a Navy SEAL. Um, that SEAL claims to be Iroquois Pliskin, Lieutenant Junior Grade Iroquois Plissken. But when he removes his mask, he looks and sounds just like Solid Snake, um, which is not something Raiden would know. But we, the player, do, even to the point that we get David Hayter's name credited on this Iroquois Pliskin. Uh, Plissken gives Raiden some updated mission information, information that's at odds with what the colonel's been telling him so far, and most disconcerting of all this information is that Raiden's unit, Foxhound, was disbanded four years ago after the Shadow Moses incident. So, who is Raiden working for?
1: It's one thing I wanted to say earlier, I forgot to, is that, um, this isn't really, again, it's like the ending bit, it's not pursuant to this episode, but- uh one of the little tells especially the second or third time through you can really that the you really figure out the colonel is not who he says he is is that they 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 deliberately reuse a lot of the same like all the dialogue about the soliton radar and all the all the like the uh, tutorial dialogue the famous metal gear like press select to open this mm-hmm. that um you can you could be can, you could be forgiven for thinking paul hiding it just wasn't giving as good a performance but if you go back and listen to the two of them like consecutively, he's much in in one, he's much warmer and much more personable and and this seems much more like his even his and this this I I credit entirely to the localization. But like his um he uses more contractions and is more like natural sounding in his dialogue whereas uh the the colonel in 2 is is deliberately he sounds almost robotic. Yeah, it's metallic. It's funny cuz if you you can think through the first like, even through the second time you can you can be like well he just doesn't know writing like snake is his friend but it's so obvious looking back like the way he speaks the the, the way he talks is very much like is being written by a ai like especially now that we know what how those like how those write and how those speak mm-hmm. it it it's like that it's like a really incredible job to recapture yeah recapturing something that did not really exist at that point
0: yeah, plenty of people have overlaid um, Metal Gear Solid 2 kernel over both Metal Gear Solid 1 kernel and also Mei Ling. Um, like you said, it's word for word. A lot of the descriptions of the Soliton radar, you know, to go to the save menu, all that stuff's the same. And if you take Paul Iding's performance in Metal Gear Solid 1, and I'd say even 4, it sounds like a human behind that voice. Whereas, as you were saying, it's very Android robotic, his uh, delivery. It's Somehow he finds a way to both flatten his voice and also suck out the humanity, but without giving it away for the first time. Exactly, like, I think you, I think you could overdo that and have it just be like, well, that per- that's
1: not a person. Right. It, instead, he just sounds kind of curt and short, and he has like very, just not like warm person at all. And it comes off like, why is the why is the colonel such an asshole? And it said it's well, because it's, it's not the colonel, but
0: <laughs> and it's also going to give space. In the performance for later on in the game for that voice to actually become menacing, threatening, um, ethereal almost. So um, I think Paul Ed- Edding does a great job in all of his performances. But this somehow I think is his best just because he has to walk that line so closely. Um but anyways, uh, getting back to the story, uh, Raiden and Snake part ways for now. And as Raiden's making his way to the next you know, part of the Big Shell structure, he sees a, the, the SEAL's Bravo team trying to take on someone who is holding the president hostage. But all the SEAL's bullets veer around their target, and even a grenade that lands at the lady's feet never explodes. A dud. It's a dud. Uh, this is Fortune, another Dead Cell member who is unlucky in everything but war. Uh, she takes out the entire Bravo team with a single blast from a rail gun that's strapped across her back, and her and BAMP disappear into the core of Shell One with the president at nuclear football. We'll We'll get to Fortune in a couple minutes here. Uh, the colonel checks in with Raiden to tell him at this point that uh, the SEALs team was mostly a distraction for Raiden to do his own infiltration. And now with the president out of reach, Raiden's mission turns to diffusing C4 that has been planted all over the base by Fat Man, the third member of Dead Cell we'll talk about today. Uh, Raiden and Pliskin rendezvous with Peter Stillman, a bomb disposal expert who was inserted along with the SEALs. And Stillman is the bomb disposal expert, and he was also Fat Man's mentor. Uh, Stillman seems a little hobbled. He's walking around with a cane. So Ryden and Plissken leave him behind while they split up uh, to take out the C4 across the two shells. Uh, and Plissken will cover shell two, Raiden handles shell one. The two find and defuse their bombs, but something doesn't sit right with Peter Stillman, who notes that the C4 are not being placed in places where they would cause key structural damage. Uh, he makes his way to shell two himself, admitting that he had lied about his limp to avoid shame uh, for a failed bomb defusal a couple of years back. Um, and when Snake and Ry or sorry, Pliskin and Raiden defuse the bombs, uh, the D- de- Um, The deactivation of these misplaced C4 trigger the actual threats. Uh, Two bombs at the bottom of each of the uh, big shell core uh, units... Um, The first bomb explodes in Shell 2, which kills Peter Stillman in the process, and Raiden has to go and uh, defuse the one at the bottom of Shell 1, and he does that just in time. He finds it right where he entered the big Shell facility, but he comes face-to-face with Fortune, who seems to have been expecting someone other than Raiden here at this moment.
1: Yeah, I want to say real quick, because I don't think we're going to talk about Stillman again, although his body does show up later. I, I like Stillman's a decent character. I I want to mention specifically what I think is the single funniest scene in Metal Gear, which is when, uh, I think it's the sec the last time you do a briefing with with Pliskin and, and Stillman. Yep. When uh, he starts pressing more about because he's... you know Snake is weird enough like he's just he's become this weird like amalgamation of all these different militaries at this point that like he. I think he realizes that Stillman is starting to, to catch on that he's not who he says he is, and Stillman starts to press him, and Snake just starts yelling out like a bunch of – like, he starts working in a bunch of different – I don't know if it's because he's nervous or because he's trying to confuse Stillman, but he starts – he says, Semper fi. he says, who dares wins, he starts using all these different military phrases that are not – you know, that Navy SEALs don't use, and it just <laughs> – he, like, freaks out and runs away, basically. <laughs> and then, yeah, that's that's where... Uh, Stillman just is like, that man is not a Navy SEAL. Um, and Ryden is... I can't remember all of them, but... Just the I, I wish I could have been there
0: to listen to David Hater just record, like, Semper who dares wins. Just, like, they just put a bunch of catchphrases in front of him. Just read them all. We'll figure out which ones we need to work in. <laughs> An army of one. Like, in the Navy, be all you can be. I guess that one would count. Yeah. But, like,
1: uh, that, I think... That is my favorite. It's one of my favorite little bits of David Hader's performance where he, he starts to panic and, and realize what's going on and then just like finds a way to disengage from the
0: conversation by confusing everyone and running away. It's such a weirdly uncharacteristic moment. Might be the funniest uh snake performance or David Hayter performance. I think it's mine. It's my favorite, yeah. It just feels it's probably because he is, you know, kind of a bounce back or, you know, kind of a sounding board for Raiden or the one who's kind of telling Raiden stuff or reacting to things Raiden is learning as he goes. Um, So it gives him more chances for humor that you don't usually get when uh, he's the playable character, so to speak. So he's not funny at all in four. Like, like, he like he
1: has funny lines, but like the performance is not trying to be funny. It's tragic. It's very serious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But uh, like we said, Raiden comes face-to-face with Fortune, so we'll go into her for a little bit now. She's voiced by Maura Gale, and her other codenames include Lady Luck and Queen. Uh, Her real name, Helen Adolph Jackson, she was the daughter of Scott Dahl from the Tanker Incident, and husband to Colonel Jackson, who we mentioned was the original Dead Cell Leader. Uh, She was born with the rare condition of her heart being on the right side, not her left. And there's not really much to her prior to the Tanker incident, but following the death of her father and her husband's arrest, her mom committed suicide. Uh, She would also end up miscarrying the child she was carrying uh, for or with uh, Colonel Jackson. And she lived under the pretense that Solid Snake had killed her dad on the USS Discovery, uh, not knowing it was actually Ocelot. And she would rise to leadership of Dead Cell after her husband's death and would develop that close relationship with Vamp. Uh, Kojima claims he got the name for fortune from the fortune cookie, but almost everything else about her kind of came from Yoji Shinkawa, uh, the backstory the art design. Uh, she wears a trench coat draped over her shoulders. Uh, the trench coat was a big thing that you know was a foxhound thing in number one, but kind of the way, way she wears it with her arms not in the sleeves it reminds me a little bit of Kaz from MGS5. Uh, nothing really there, just kind of a visual similarity I noticed. And uh, when we start diving into the themes and concepts of Fortune, uh, we should note that she's a black woman and there aren't really a ton of black women or really black characters in Metal Gear Solid period, uh, especially the first three or four games. And it turns out that two of the black characters end up being the same person in terms of Donald Anderson and Sigint.
1: We do have Stillman who dies after like an hour of screen time.
0: (laughs) That's right. But yeah, but you know it's very limited. It's definitely very uh, a lot of white characters in the game. But that's a good. I, I I do like Stillman as a. I mean, I don't feel super qualified to talk
1: about this, but I like Stillman as a representational character because like he could have easily been a white guy. There's no reason. Mm-hmm. So that that feels like actual representation where it's just like making like it's it's a lot of the people complain about comic book characters being you know black actors playing, but like nothing about. The, the Human Torch in Fantastic Four says he can't be a black guy. There's, there's nothing about him that's specifically white. There's
0: no specific burden or pathos to him that comes yeah, with it. Yeah, there's,
1: it's not like, like, the example I use of the opposite is always Daredevil, because I think Daredevil has to be like an Irish Catholic white guy, but like, yeah. most other comic book characters don't like, Bruce Wayne could be black, there's no reason. Mm-hmm. I guess he's privileged, but if he's that rich, he'd be privileged anyway. And I, anyways, I like that I like that Stillman is just sort of like, there's nothing about his character that is like marks him specifically as as any race or any ethnicity. So I, I like that he's even if he's only in the story for a little bit, I think that's good. I think that's a that's for sure. Nice to see at
0: least. It's not bad, yeah, yeah. And uh, with this whole uh, you know concept of a black woman, there are some tropes here. Uh, She was originally supposed to play the saxophone, uh, invoking jazz as a concept, both because of the heavy American and New York concepts tied into the overall story of Metal Gear uh, Solid 2, uh, with ties to uh, jazz and the Harlem Renaissance. And though the sax would be ditched for her character, uh, they did become part of her uh, leitmotif. The score that generally comes with Fortune uh, very heavily stars a saxophone. And just thinking about political thrillers and paranoia, I think of the ending of the conversation which if you've never seen that francis ford coppola movie you should go watch it it's one of those great 70s political thrillers uh but for whatever reason just anytime i think saxophone political thriller i think of that movie um if you've seen it you probably know why i think of cowboy bebop oh there you go (laughs) Uh, the whole uh, concept of voodoo is kind of also invoked in her character, and voodoo is really a pop culture sensation sensationalization of Voodan, which is an Afro-Caribbean spirituality. But the idea that she's uh, fortunes a lady luck of sorts, a witch, um, you know, which is heavily tied into concepts like tar- tarot cards and stuff like that, um, there was just this big, you know, mega corporate Disney property about a witch with probability hexes and all that, but uh, not going to go into that. But these are kind of the ideas that they can play on with invoking um, this with the character. And she would reveal herself to have some slight mystical or psychic powers in the end of the game where she is able to deflect missiles um, somehow. Uh, they don't really explain it. They don't take time to explain it. I'm glad there's not a part of Metal Gear Solid 4 where they say it was in her nano machines or anything like that. Um, every other bullet and grenade that misses her is a result of an electri- electrical field that surrounds her due to, like, I think it's built into her gun, or at least that's the canon that I've come up with. Ocelot has a similar device that uh, he has strapped to his uh, belt, uh, but basically everything that missed her or didn't blow up around her was because of an electrical field kind of stopping it from happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, like every other character in Metal Gear Solid, there is a lot of Sins of the Father theme associated with Fortune. Uh, we'll see this again with Olga, who we're going to talk about next time we talk about. Um, she has two desires in her life, revenge and death, which really are what Metal Gear Solid 5 is about. Uh, but she kind of passes on this meme of wanting to die in this game to Vamp in Metal Gear Solid 4, which you mentioned a little bit ago. And she's constantly uh saying that she has no future. That's why she constantly wants to die. And that puts her in stark contrast with Solid Snake, who over the course of this game just constantly tells us what he's fighting for is the future. Um he can't go back on his past, but he can always fight for the next day. And you know, Fortune is only um living at this point she claims so she can fight Solid Snake because, you know, she thinks he killed her father. Uh, but that's also kind of the meme of gray Fox from metal gear solid one, where he really wanted to just fight solid snake again, not necessarily kill solid snake, but he wanted to fight solid snake as it would be some sort of catharsis for him. Um, And the boss encounter with her when she encounters right in here, um, I called it an encounter because you don't really fight her. Um, She's armed with her giant railgun, which looks like a miniaturized version of Rex's railgun from Metal Gear Solid. It shoots overly large charged particles, which uh, I just started watching Neon Genesis Evangelion a little bit ago, and it just reminds me of the giant sniper guns that the eva's used for no other reason they talk about it being a particle gun of sorts i i think that's a that's probably a reference
1: because that was sort of popular it was sort of popularized by eva yeah to an extent that, that sort of gun mm-hmm. I mean, that's the eva gun that, that that's that's sort of the
0: it's like if a guy has a giant sword it's the cloud sword like that's sort of the thing exactly and uh this gun would carry forward to uh Crying Wolf in uh, Metal Gear Solid 4, the sniper wolf equivalent in that game, Uh, her gun will be this, which is actually, I think, one of the cooler parts and especially the way they work it in with the gecko fight a little bit later. But this battle itself is not an actual battle. You basically just have to outlast her while you're waiting for the elevator to come down. She has extremely low health and stamina in her life bar, which makes it very tempting to think, oh, if I can just get one shot in on her or somehow get in on her, I can actually take her out like with really quickly. It's just figuring out what the trick is with trying to hit her, which, you know, you could say is also, again, playing with the Mantis concept because you weren't really able to hit him until you switch the controller port. I don't think it's supposed to be a direct parallel, but I do see some similarities there.
1: It is something that's carried forward a lot, too, because um, th- th- that this idea of, like, interactive health and stamina meters is something I- I'm a big fan of that. I like that a lot. The uh, the mild spoiler, the final fight in Revengeance has you, when uh, Armstrong powers up, Raiden, hit, it's in the cutscene, but he hits him with this huge combo. He hits him, like, 400 times, and it takes away, like... 0.7 percent of his health like nothing of his health mm-hmm. and then he just charges back up and then he um it's one of the neatest things in that game every boss has like a percentage meter in their health it's always to 100 armstrong goes to 200 percent, which is actually the same as ryden's maximum health if you've been completely min maxing him out all the way and like uh, upgrading him all the way and it's a really nice way of like really effectively and just through a simple ui element really communicating that like this is this, this is a real like this is the actual boss this is this, this is a tough character and I, I like that that i like that the, that that kind of spoils the fortune thing kind of spoils that she's not like the same kind of she's not like a warrior in the same way that like snake would be mm-hmm. so like it it kind of spoils the fact that like she's not actually like you can't you, you never fight her she's not like an enemy really she's just like a civilian who's been sort of pulled into all this and has like uh, her own motivations and her own like, Fat Man has like a normal Fat Man and Vamp have like normal health and stamina bars. Mm-hmm. I think, I think they're the same size, so they're people that yep. Ryan is supposed to defeat. And Fortune is not, it's a nice little spoiler, like,
0: you don't actually fight her, and this is why. Because if yeah. you really fight if you're really able to fight her, you would kill her immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice, it's a very small fourth wall break. Uh,
1: it's almost like fourth wall support, like, it's almost like, um. I don't know how else to describe it. I really like those little UI things, though. Metal Gear does them all the time. I'm a big fan.
0: Yeah, I think this game might be one of the best for some of that, because we'll talk about Solid Snake's life bar when you fight alongside him later in the game. You've teased that quite a bit. And going back through the game... Seeing them actually engage with it, like you say, the really short one for Fortune here, the really long one for Solid Snake in the end, um, you see the story being told of the game through ways that are not actually diegetic to the story. It's storytelling to just the player um, because, you know, the characters can't see their health and life and stamina bars, uh, but we can and we can actually draw some conclusions. Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, but yeah, so it's really cool. And uh, we also talked about like the environmental fidelity of, you know, this entire game, like the melting ice cubes and all that. And it does feel like this boss encounter is a way to show show off some of that environmental interactivity because... Uh, Fortune's just destroying the shit out of the room. Like, everything that's in the arena can basically be destroyed, be blowed up. Um, the lighting changes with her charging of the gun, whether she's taking out light bulbs or other light sources, um... For a not a fight, Uh, it's actually, you know, there's at least some interesting stuff going around to kind of keep your attention. And I've been thinking about it is like a lot of these games have a not a boss fight. Like the decoy octopus wasn't really a fight that you do. Um, It's just kind of there. And and this is also not a boss fight, uh, but it kind of tells a story using a lot of boss mechanics, which is kind of cool. Three has uh, uh, two of them, if you play it correctly. Yeah. Um, I I know the sorrow for sure. Are you talking about some take on the end, or
1: yeah, yeah? You you don't have to fight the end if you don't want. There's there's two different ways you can just
0: not fight the end. Yep. Um. We'll and talk I admit I used to do. I yeah. We we're gonna talk about every way you can fight the end, and I plan to do all of them when I replay it for this podcast. But. Returning back to our story, um, like the SEALs before Raiden, he's unable to land a shot on Fortune, but Vamp shows up and it gives Raiden an opening. A stray bullet finds its way through Vamp's forehead, which seems to kill him, and then Fortune turns to take care of Vamp. Raiden sneaks out, but as soon as he's gone, Vamp wakes up. Uh, Raiden, meanwhile, gets an urgent order from the colonel, go find Fat Man on the helipad on strut E and stop him. Apparently, Fat Man has gone rogue from Dead Cell, even, and just plans to blow up everything regardless. Raiden will stop him, but not before getting more conflicting info. Uh, Fat Man was unaware of any ransom demands associated with this hostage situation, and Pliskin later tells Raiden that there's no risk of environmental disaster. It seems everything Raiden was told about this mission was a lie. And... We'll, we'll get to that eventually, but let's take a minute here and let's talk about Fat Man, uh, voiced by Barry Denon. He was named after the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki in 1945, grew up mostly neglected by his parents, but at his father's watch shop, he grew fascinated with clocks, time, and mechanics, which reminds me a little bit of Dr. Manhattan. At age 10, he would build his first atomic weapon, uh, big assist of the internet, getting him those designs, and he would go on to a career at bomb disposal and creation, uh, trained by NYPD bomb expert Peter Stillman, who we've met, and he'd eventually join Dead Cell as their explosive expert, uh, specifically in terms of planting bombs at Allied bases and testing their bomb response and bomb preparedness. Uh, the themes and concepts associated with Fat Man, uh, bombs as a synecdoche for talking about nukes. We talked, you know, so long in the first game about uh, nuclear bombs uh, and, you know, the themes that was playing with them. Fat Man himself built one at the age of 10, thanks to the internet. Um, and this can start getting into the themes of why the Patriots want to enforce information control. Um, because while I don't think there was ever a serious threat, you often hear that talk, especially when talking about free speech or the regulation of internet, like what if someone found uh, the blueprints for a bomb or some kind of weapon on the internet? Should that be regulated? Should that be suppressed? Um, So that whole idea is kind of coming into focus here. Um, There's demolition as an ideology, which is a very interesting thing for Fat Man to talk about. Um, And the meme of Fat Man, because Fat Man, as we mentioned, is the nuke that was dropped Um, in 1945, carrying that, you know, name and idea forward. Um, Fat Man also carries forward Peter Stillman's legacy, and he almost becomes uh, Peter Stillman's legacy that, you know, his greatest student ended up being a psycho-terrorist kind of person instead of, you know, an acclaimed bomb defusal guy. And the idea of corrupting a meme or an idea like in this situation is, you know, again, part of the information control that the uh, Patriots might be working with it's their S3 plan that we'll talk about in a couple episodes and how we prevent the corruption of information or control that corruption so to speak um, Batman's also an extremely narcissistic character hilariously so I would say yeah um, because he's really into his own image and legacy. Like they literally describe him as being into his own aesthetics. Um, he has that extreme New York, uh, accent. Uh, he has earrings. He drinks wine out of a straw. He's finally manicured. He even puts cologne on his, uh, bombs as like a signature or scent, which seems
1: very counterintuitive. I want to say real quick. I like it. it's, it's a thing. I think this is also deliberate. Um, these three characters are all, like, visually and, like, just the, the, the surface level of their designs really weird and, like, interesting looking. But they all end up being, like, not to say the Fat Man and Fortune in particular are, like, bad characters. They're just not, like, important. And they, they don't, like, they're not the most, they're not the deepest and most interesting characters in, in, in the legendarium, as I would say if I was doing a different kind of podcast. But, like, um... <laughs> But I, I like that, that because they're not the like, actual villains of the game, like they're positioned as the villains of the game, so like surface level, they are your foes. But it turns out that they're they're just sort of puppets. And I think that really works with like how they're how they're characterized in this game, because they all end up just kind of being disposable. And they're just sort of flashy just, like frontline they're they're here they're deliberately trying to recapture Foxhound. That's the point. And like they're all kind of pale imitations of different Foxhound characters. And like, if this game was going for something different, it would be a it would be a demerit that would be bad. But because it's going for what it's going for, it just it really works. Like uh, second and third playthrough, fourth playthrough, fifth playthrough, it really works. Like it really comes together that these are like these are these are surface level characters at best, and I really enjoy that about especially about Fat Man because Fat Man is like he's fun, the weirdest, yeah, he's like the most eclectic and strangest one. He like like what's going on with this guy's design? It's it's bizarre. And it, yeah, it turns out it's just—it's literally just and circumstance. Like, there's nothing to him at all. I really enjoyed that about him. Now we could talk
0: about his fight. Uh, if you, uh, I, I want to add to that because I think that's a great point because I feel like Fat Man and Fortune specifically, and this is a term the game will use several times, especially in the last half. There are more roles yes. that are being played as opposed to characters or huge narrative cogs. That's a very good way to uh, say it because. If you think about a lot of the other bosses, they end up being big cogs in the Metal Gear Solid Canon and they reverberate through multiple iterations of you know the game series like Psychomantis shows up or you know Ocelot goes on to be this huge big bad or even things like even the end who's pretty much relegated to just his game, but he comes up again in Metal Gear Solid Five and you know his weapon carries for it like yeah. it feels like all the other Uh, bosses and enemies, except for Metal Gear Solid 4, which is meant to be kind of like a consolidation or conclusion to it, Um, they all reverberate through the rest of the franchise, whereas... Uh, Vamp does, uh, because he comes back a little bit, and he's more integral to Raiden's story. But Fortune and Fat Man specifically, especially when we find out about the Patriots' plans and Ocelot's plans later, they're just roles to play. And they could have subbed in someone else if they needed to. Um, They're not as core um, to it. And I can even see the Patriots making some kind of conscious decision that the abilities that Vamp contains are worth preserving, whereas everything going on with Fortune and Fat Man is ultimately replaceable on some level yeah um they don't have some intrinsic or unique aspect to them that needs to it,
1: it contributes more to this idea that the mgs2 exists in its own like pocket universe almost or like because mm-hmm. even olga i mean olga aside from her aside from sunny who's even then not, not that important of a character like not that prevalent of a character she's important right um yeah, it's like almost everything that happens in this game feels like it exists in a different universe. It's great. Yeah, it only it only works it only works with this game.
0: Mm-hmm. And like you said, uh, we should talk about the boss battle and design. I actually uh, pretty much enjoy this uh, boss battle throughout, um, and it kind of has its own kind of gameplay prelude in the fact that, uh, like we mentioned, you're going around the big shell and you're disposing bombs. Um, and you use this coolant that's given to you by Stillman to uh, basically freeze the bombs from short range to kind of deactivate them. But all the bombs that you defu- diffuse throughout the big shell are visible right from your entry into the big shell. So um, you can see them very early on uh, in the struts that you're exploring, but because you don't get the coolant until you meet Stillman, you can't actually do anything with them. And uh, one uh, interesting to note here is we'll find out... Uh, We'll get some revelations later that uh, Fat Man was on his own and probably working for the Patriots. Uh, one of the bombs he had planted in that kind of hide-and-seek part of the game was on the Harrier that Solidus would pilot later. And it makes you wonder if Fat Man was trying to take out Solidus at all for any reason. Um When you meet him in his boss battle, he's, again, he's all kind of goofy because he has a wine glass and he's drinking out of it from a straw. He's on rollerblades and he's in a demolition shoot, which I had never seen before. Like, I think Kurt Locker was the first time I had seen it after Metal Gear Solid 2. It's just not something that was, you know, as prevalent, but especially going into the war on terror and IEDs is something that would become a little more part of kind of that like national security, political thriller imagery uh, in pop culture. Uh, and one thing I like about Fat Man, and this is something that is common in a lot of uh Metal Gear bosses, is that even though they're big guys, they move around really fast. Uh, we talked about Vulcan Raven in the previous game, um, who's you know just giant and shaman, but he just motors around his little arena, like even with that giant gun strapped to his back. Likewise, the Fury in Metal Gear Solid 3. He's a big dude, but he actually, you would think he'd be lumbering or plodding when he comes after you, but no, he can sprint, and then obviously he has a jetpack to boost him a little bit. Um, and then likewise, uh, Fat Man using the rollerblades, like, for a big guy, he's getting around quite quickly, and it's actually really hard to just land shots on him. In the most recent playthrough I had, I found it easier to kind of knock him down with punches and kicks and then kind of start popping him while he's down on the ground. The, the Zion Williamson of, of Metal Gear Solid 2. <laughs> oh, yeah. And what's it called? Uh, the coolant that you're given for the bomb disposal, they do find other uses for it throughout the game, which I always like when a mechanic is introduced and they actually find ways to use it in different ways. That's the, anti, the anti-Zelda. the <laughs> anti Yes, exactly, where you don't just get a weapon to beat the dungeon and never touch it yeah. again unless it's like the hook shot or the bow and arrow. Yeah. Um, what, what happens is you can use... Uh, the coolant to take out fires that are blocking your path so you can walk through. You can also use them to scatter bugs, which you'll need to do um, at various points as well. So um, I like that they did that. And I think one of both of our complaints with uh, some of the non-lethal mechanics in Metal Gear is that characters still die because they need to die for plot. Um, But one thing that I had just discovered in my recent research is that if you do non-lethally defeat Uh, Fat Man uh, with the tranquilizer gun or, you know, with punches and kicks, Uh, you will hear the sound of him supposedly skating off after your boss encounter right before you meet uh, the Cyborg Ninja. But um, canonically, he dies at this point. He's shown bleeding out regardless of what weapon uh, you use for him. So um, I think this is just one of those. The video game kind of gets in way of the story, uh, so to speak, Uh, or maybe it's the other way around. But uh, what do you think about all that? About specifically
1: about him escaping? I don't care. I, I never because he doesn't do it. There's no like, again. He doesn't come back. <laughs> it's <laughs> he's such a d- deliberate throwaway character that like I I enjoy the time I have with him. I don't care if he lives or dies. It doesn't matter. They do this much better. Three does just handle this this stuff much better, and and then like mm-hmm. especially, I mean four. I don't know. I don't know if any of the games handle them that well until you okay. until you can start faulting people. That's, that's
0: when it becomes, yeah. that's when it sort of comes together as a concept. Yeah. Three, three ends up does having a narrative explanation in it. And we'll get to it when we get to it, but it's, it's, you, you would feel a little more interesting if non-lethally taken out. The characters actually change the outcome in some way. Cause it's still the same sort story regardless. Um, but we'll get to that. Um, I do want to take a second here just to give some things we'll find out about Fat Man later, uh, which are kind of relevant to talk about now, is that Fat Man was working for the Patriots the entire time. He was a kind of a sleeper agent within Dead Cell. The Patriots. And they kind of promised him personal glory for uh, if they would betray Dead Cell um. Or, you know, do this, his old mad bomber plot and fight Raiden and all that. And we talked about earlier that he's really narcissistic into his own aesthetic and legacy. And I wanted to mention that. It's supposed to be very American of him to be this way, to be narcissistic and to be about his legacy, like and to be a big fat fuck. <laughs> yeah, like an American uh, American exceptionalism, like personified, is kind of a little bit what he's going for, and kind of being a celebrity, a pampered, you know, movie star, a little bit, um, which I think is kind of cool. And the whole plot purpose of this whole uh, boss fight is that it's all engineered as a test for Raiden, uh, because we'll find out later that. Um, There's this whole S3 plan, which this Big Shell incident is a simulation of. And this is basically a test. If Ryden can beat Fat Man, that means they're on the right track and they can keep going with the simulation or scenario. But if he cannot beat Fat Man, uh, that basically means they haven't been successful and they can just cut their losses. You can't beat Fat Man. How is he going to defeat 15 Metal Gear Rays or whatever? (laughs) Yeah, Um, which is kind of interesting because I think – Every Metal Gear game, especially the first three, have moments that specifically you have to be this good of a player to continue on with this game or else you're not going to get it. Um, They usually have like an opening shootout or like an opening boss fight, um, which kind of stands in for that. Just to make sure you have the mechanics and the skill set down you need to beat the game. Uh, This a lot of Metal Gear Solid 2 to me when we talk about the meta narrative aspects is they take the process of making a game, of making a sequel, of making a story, and they actually explicitly make it part of the story in Mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is one of the places, again, we mentioned earlier that members of Dead Cell who were cut from the final version of the game ended up being part of the story as being members who died previously. Um, That kind of conversation between game production and the game narrative itself.
1: Well, uh, and you mentioned before about you get you get a lot of experience disarming the bombs before you fight Fat that, Man. That's that's sort of a Nintendo style like living tutorial. Like the game teaches you how to play it as you're playing it, so you know. I mean, a good example is is the best thing about Breath of the Wild. About doing the the beasts in Breath of the Wild isn't that you get to have Ganon's health at the end, is that you get to experience all the bosses' attacks and their patterns. So when you fight him and he uses those again, you already know them. Mm-hmm. Like, that's 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 sort of a Nintendo-style, like... I can't think of... The, it's Living Tutorial, I think, was the phrase I've read for that. But yeah, like, that's that's really good... That's good game design. Like, that's... And this Metal Gear is a series... I mean, the bosses are all great, but they're not the most intuitive bosses in the world, I think. And that's a nice change of pace of, a, of, a, of sort of teaching you how... Because that would be – imagine if that was the first time you saw any of those bombs. It was during that fight. Like, it'd be hard. You would have no idea what you were doing. Yeah. But, like, getting to freeze them beforehand and sort of getting that down to shorthand is very, very good. And it's it's really quality game design. And it's one of the few – it's probably the only example of this game padding itself out that actually works. It's something I think – People complain about MGS because MGS two is what it's just like six hours long, right? Not that long. It's
0: pretty, pretty short. True. It's pretty short, all things considered. Yeah,
1: and so I know a lot of people complained about the length of it, but like I feel like there's there's too much backtracking as it is already. Like you could do without pretty much the entirety of the swimming section. Mm-hmm. You could do without most of like the going back to the other struts. It gets tedious. This is the only one that I think works because it actively prepares you for a future challenge. Like getting the right gun to go with your disguise to get into that. Like that. There's nothing that doesn't come back up again. There's nothing to that. That's just padding. Whereas this, a lot of that stuff could have been in the VR missions. This, the, the fat man and the bomb thing, feels like something that was designed in concert with the boss fight itself, and it really it works a lot better.
0: Yeah, and I think it, that they're able to make it work with the narrative, with the general context of a hostage terrorist situation. You know, diffusing bombs seems to go hand in hand. Um, using that as a mechanic to kind of. Because the whole thing about Stillman being like, oh, this doesn't sit well, something's not right here, I think we don't have the whole story, it kind of works as a overture or kind of foreshadowing for what the bigger point of the, you know, the bigger bombs the plot's going to drop later. Um, all the little things you're kind of running around and doing as um are actually, you know, part of some bigger narrative explosions. I'm really straining on this metaphor here, but um, they, they make it interesting enough, and it's a lot of this stuff you're doing, like directly interacting with uh, Pliskin slash Snake, um, which, you know, as someone who wanted to be Snake, every time I was talking to Snake or Pliskin, I was more engaged in the game uh, specifically just because I want to be him. So I want to know what he's got to tell me, um, which will eventually lead me to realizing that he is or, you know, isn't the Solid Snake if that was what the story was going to be. But he very much is. And we'll get into that next time.
1: Bombs tell the time with every moment of their existence, and nothing else announces its own
0: end with such a fanfare. Glad you could make it. The party's about to start. So, uh, with that, that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is Podcast Sans Frontieres at gmail.com and Pod Sans Front on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. We're
1: all born with an expiration date.
0: No one lasts forever. That quote will be more and more relevant next time. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Uh, please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And until next time, remember you can say goodbye to yesterday. Refuse to fly. I can't. Bye. And hitting stop now.